All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a returning guest. His name is Valibus. He goes by JJ as well. We're going to talk about Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel. And last time we were together, we talked about Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land that was very well received. People were very interested in that. So this book was published in 1951. It was actually a short story, but it's a precursor to his later work in 2001, A Space Odyssey. So I think it's very important to kind of see this spot in time where Arthur C. Clarke was writing about this mysterious thing or monolith on on the moon. So, uh, JJ, are you there? Yeah, Mr. William Ramsey, great great speaking with you again today. Thanks for having me back. I, yeah. I also enjoyed the last conversation. I thought it was very fruitful of information, and uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, so me too. Look, looking forward to this one as well. And I think Arthur C. Clarke may, in fact, be a more interesting character than Robert Heinlein. Yeah, for sure. Very interesting character. So what were your impressions about uh, The Sentinel when you reread it recently? Uh, and yeah, it is recently because I, to be quite candid, I'm not a science fiction fan whatsoever. So these are the first time I've, I, I've read some of these works or second time, you know, I've read some of these works. So I'm not, you know, these are all, I'm basically I'm reading them for these discussions for the most part or, you know, have a greater understanding of who these, who these group of people really were. Right. And, you know, but I, I, mean, I have an interest in science and, and some in fiction, but not so much of the spaceship exploration stuff that these, these, these folks, you know, seem to focus on. Right. I, I don't think I am either, but I do think that it's fascinating to see what they're writing about it at any given oh, time, you know, what their absolutely. impressions were. So particularly this book, I mean, considering the import and impact of 2001, A Space Odyssey, I think that this is an important work that probably gets left out in Kubrick clark discussions oh absolutely and i think it's all yeah and that's kind of why i chose it i think it's often overlooked as, as it was the precursor to the the you know the film masterpiece right which was unlike any other film at its time i mean that was really a monumental breakthrough in filmmaking the 2001 a space odyssey and uh I believe it was the summer of 1968 right so this is 51 i mean what are your what do you want to talk about the sentinel itself and the, uh, the short story yeah, I mean, I think you kind of touched it on already. Kind of the, one of the most important characteristics of the story that I, I found most important was the, the the talk of these monoliths. You know, it seems to be an, an underlying, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, concept in a lot of these science fiction stories of you know, in, you know, terrestrial, you know, folks living on other planets. What you want to call them, aliens or extraterrestrials, whatever you want to call them. But you know, and that these folks had civilizations that had long predated ours and. That's kind of the kind of the gist of what that whole right not just not just Heinlein you know not just um, Clark here but also Heinlein as well they you know they're kind of emphasizing that there was a we're not the first people to live on a planet and build things and these other people left monuments and other on other planets right so without this those is, concepts yeah. without, without those concepts I don't know we would have like people like Buzz Aldrin going on I think was C-SPAN a few years ago and saying there's a monolith on Mars you know. His right. little monolith on Mars speech. So without those concepts, though, without without Clark inserting these ideas or Heinlein, for that matter, I'm not sure that we would have those ideas and concepts in our society. And I, I think that kind of that's my biggest takeaway on like a strategic level from the story was the the concepts of space that are formed, but right. also individually and more of a more of a tactical level, just the um, you know like the, like I said the, the previous civilizations, the the other people living on other planets. These these ideas are perpetrated through these stories. And I think that's a lot where our society gets them from today. 
but Clark isn't just important for his short stories. I mean, he was involved in the moon landing. So he was yeah. a, a color commentator for yep. that. I mean, really remarkable person. Which is really interesting if you think about it. I mean, why was why it was him and Heinlein, correct? Is that, is that, is that correct? I think so. I think that's, yeah. With with uh, Walter, well, uh, I believe Walter Cronkite. Right, who also, or you know, was commentating on when Kennedy got killed, right? So <laughs> right. He's, yeah. Very interesting characters. He was a gatekeeper of, of that time for information, for sure. So he's, he's expected to be there, you know. But right. these other guys, I don't, you know, what are their tie-ins? They're science fiction writers. Right, but I mean, in in some ways, his Clark science fiction became reality. He was the guy who came up with the idea of the geosynchronous orbit of satellites. So that was his kind of concept. Yeah. So he was definitely a scientist as well as a as a science fiction author, but uh, also an interesting guy. I mean, his books are stocked with occult references, and this book, this Sentinel, didn't really have it. But the two thousand one Space Odyssey book that he wrote was just chock full of stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you the, so this the original Sentinel was a pyramid, right? So it's supposedly it a pyramid twice the size of a man on in the middle of a natural plateau, three hundred miles in, in diameter, and that was somebody who was on there saw this metallic glitter, and then they figured out what it was, and I think they nuked it right on in this in the short story, and then they gave off some kind of sound and that's why it was the sentence sentinel for other intelligences right sure yeah that's that's precisely you know but and then I, and i think and i think that that that's that's he's, he's underlying that concept continue but i think that's a concept he's really trying to drive home right there in that story right so the other the other things but then in the book in the book that reference i mean so he writes the book with when working on the film with kubrick but then they turn it from a pyramid to a tall 11 foot tall monolith right right correct so there is the kind of 11 again the number of magic and its dimensions are strange yeah. too but that's and that's even kept on in the film there's a really interesting book by a guy by the name of benson it came out it's the space odyssey stanley kubrick arthur c clark in the making of a masterpiece published in i think it's 2018 a really good book because it shows the background but it they were about to put the black they're going to turn their monolith in uh, as a black cube like a black oh. cube of Saturn. Saturn, yeah. So yeah. it went through different iterations of this uh, kind of uh, symbol that they were going to use, but mm -hmm. uh, really fascinating. And and they land and like you said, they landed on a monolith in the in the actual full story of it, and and in the film. And you know, the monolith I think it bears a striking resemblance, at least in concept and principles, to you know uh, an obelisk. Sure, they're not, they're yeah. not one and the same, but they're you know it's essentially the same thing. Right. It's, yeah, it's like a big, tall, eerie structure. Yeah. And once, once you start thinking down that path, I don't think, you know, much like you said, the, the Clark or, you know, and Heinlein have been, you know, they've established the concepts, whether it be geosynchronous orbit, whether it be of satellites, whether it be rocketry altogether or space exploration, where Heinlein still has an award for his name for space exploration every year, going to somebody, you know, getting awarded every year. So, you know, and I think in, in along these lines, you know, if you think about along those lines, the and they're doing the narration for the Apollo 11 moon mission. Well, I mean, in a sense, from my perspective, the Apollo 11 rocket is a giant obelisk. Right. And, it's, and there's it's your 11 again, yeah. And it's, and yeah, there's your, you beat me to it. And there's your 11 again. And, you know, it just seems to circle right back with these people along the same lines and the same concepts. They're all kind of doing the same thing. They're all into ancient aliens. 
that's right. again, the Sentinels, the ancient alien story about how they established a civilization on the moon many years ago. And uh, I think it, eons ago, you know what they, what they try to say, which is a thousands of years, you know, and, uh, you know, and then they have a, 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 a giant obelisk they're launching in the quote unquote space um, in July uh, 16th of 1969. And the, the fuel, the fuel that's operating that is built from a thalemic sex magic ritual. Right. You so know. it goes back to Parsons, the original yeah. stuff that was building up. To so it. It's always right. circling back to that same group because Parsons, and as we've discussed in the past, that's part of that same group, the Parsons and the, right. the L. Ron Hubbards and, and whatnot. Right. Do you are you a moon landing believer or non-believer? No, no, I'm not a. I, you know, I've, I've I've thought about it a lot, and uh, you know, it, it's it it's kind of funny to even, in my opinion, even think we actually did it. Yeah, I do too. You know, but I mean, I mean there's was, mounds of evidence, in my opinion, that says we did not. I mean, it's the the, yeah. the story. The story paints a picture on in and of its own. No, there's tons of problems, but there. I mean, I think for me, it was very hard to believe that they would go through with that. But uh, yeah. No, I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we ever made it to the middle. I don't think we made. I don't think humanity's made it past the Van Allen belt. So I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you know, I'd have to see a lot of some some evidence to support that they did if, if they did and how they accomplished such. But you no, know, the, not the, in that rudimentary thing that they show on TV. There's no way. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, right. The the tin can, like the yeah. whole performance, seems so you know so uh, just right. like a community theater today yeah community theater into, yeah. i mean maybe it was convincing back then but now oh, like, sure where's, was. The, where's the gas where's the yeah. how did the moon lander just suddenly i mean the the four-wheel drive thing come out of it i mean it's just all <laughs> yeah. kinds of problems man. yeah the, the jeep and the suitcase yeah that's yeah. always that's always a problem for them to explain <laughs> yeah so but yeah clark really interesting character have you ever read uh hoffman's view of what the what the monolith is and oh, uh, second, no, is it secret societies and psychological warfare? That book, I, I'm familiar with the book, but I know I, I don't recall what. Let he, me what let me read it into the record if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So he, this is what he writes about it. The mute monolith of 2001 is a harbinger of what Clark calls in uh, in another of his works, the Overlord. It is the Ashlar of the secret societies. The monolith represents the shaping function of the occult magus who tames and tampers with the natural world. And the 2001 monolith is a stake that impales the divine organic in favor of anthropomorphic artifice. It is one of the totems of human brain power and of the cryptocrats who imagine themselves the most cerebral of us all. Wow. Pretty interesting, huh? That's, I mean, that's pretty deep too. Yeah. I mean, that book, I mean, that's a whole nother story is that book of Hoffman, how he compiled that book before with and then unfortunately there's no footnotes or anything in that book but it's pretty it's a pretty remarkable book right yeah i mean the guy was notorious for writing some extensive conspiracy type novels so i mean i yeah. i'm not surprised that i don't recall that quote off the top of my head from reading it but it it definitely it sounds like something he'd write but it makes sense i mean it's yeah. the ashlar right so it's a symbol of what comes out each each mason is an ashlar of the masonic wall right so mm -hmm. in a lot of ways you can interpret the whole sequence of the apes and the monolith in 2001 in an occult, through oh. an occult lens. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, continue. I see what you're saying. Though. You're saying this is a, like a, an evolution type of. Yeah, of well, that's the whole thing. Is that even the evolution is a hoax, right? It comes. It's right. an occult telling of like. So if you're on the inside and you understand what the monolith is, then then you can might be able to see this this evolution as a more occult magical. Mind frame in a mind frame than a science mind frame. Does that make sense? No, I I, I, I see what you're saying. I agree. Yeah. 
And yeah, so, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of that double meaning there. I mean, yeah. it, just in, just in the on the surface level, you got a double meaning of the sci-fi writer Clark who's doing the narration for the Apollo Eleven missions, but he's also writing a book about the Apollo, you know, about two thousand one: A Space Odyssey with Stanley Kubrick, right. who is deeply ingrained in the Apollo Eleven missions. Right, and here's and the other no, thing: no reason to be, but he is. He's deeply ingrained in it. Right. Do you know this Benson book that I mentioned? It's very interesting because. It talks about those two being together in New York City as the Twin Towers are being built, like being two blocks away, hammering out their concepts for this film. Wow. It's pretty incredible. So they're like walking in the, sh the shadow of what happened in 2001 in what, 60, early 60s, Yeah, you know, arguing. And I think that uh, Clark was staying at the Chelsea Hotel, right? This famous hotel where all this stuff happens. And who else is he hanging out with at the same time? It's um, oh, what's the guy who wrote Naked Lunch? Oh, um, oh. it's uh, I see his face. Anyway, it's this That's like famous one. beat writer, right? Oh, Burroughs, Burroughs. Yeah, Burroughs. So he's hanging out with Burroughs at night when he in the during the day he's hanging out with um, Kubrick. It's incredible. Yeah, it's Burroughs, really incredible. Burroughs it's just, is. Burroughs is up there as far as is with Highland and Clark and the rest right. of the thing is just an extremely interesting character. Yeah, in his activities occult, in life. Uh, comes of occult records and some of his other. So, and Clark, I and this is all from my book, Children of the Beast. My segment on Clark is like he went on when he wrote 2010, he the Jupiter became Lucifer, right? And okay. then Lucifer shines down on the, the world and he has a quote it says, A generation would soon be born. That had never known a world without Lucifer, unquote. Can you believe that? Like he got away with writing that. And then they send something back to Earth on Bowman, and it's an 11 letter word uh, phrase, 11 word phrase. All these worlds are yours except Europa. Attempt no landings there. And it was sent to Earth 93 times. Wow. There's some, there's some symbology structure through all that, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Rendezvous with Rama is the same thing. This is all Childhood's End, Kay, Carolyn, all these. He knew all that stuff. So, so you had to have a great book, Children of the Beast. Yeah. He had to grab a great, an extensive cult, occult knowledge base yeah. in order to insert these things into his stories, then, yeah. obviously. Yep. And you connected. Know, I, I think he was connected. He had to have been, I don't know if he was a Mason or what, but the guy had definitely had connections and seemed to have pull. You know, when they had that whole thing in the Sunday Mirror with him having sex with young boys, that thing yep. just disappeared right off of the internet. And not only that, they kind of played it off as like, yeah, we all knew he was doing it for a while. We just told him to stop. And when he didn't, we just sent him to another country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was, yeah. that was, they were kind of like accepting as that was the proper procedure to take. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But it's, that's uh, the, that's the weird thing about these guys is like, I mean, there are rumors about Kubrick as well. These two guys, these sure. guys, you know, pedophiles. sure. I mean, and Kubrick again. He's he's got pull. I mean, you're talking. He's while he's doing the project of 2001: A Space Odyssey with Clark. He's the NASA administrators, including Warren von Braun from the Apollo missions, are visiting the the, the stage, the sound yes. the sound stage yeah. and yeah. Movie, movie set. They're the giving. Guy, yeah, the big guy from NASA. His name is Mueller. Right, Robert Mueller. There's pictures of Clark, Kubrick, and Mueller, the head of NASA, all together at sound stages. And they're in London, correct? If I'm not mistaken, yeah, he's from right. London, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's all there. So, I what mean, would require the NASA guys to go over there to London to meet with this director guy, who is also they've given a camera to to film this movie, right? Right. So he Except, had the highest technology, right? Right. He had the greatest technology available, a camera that was awarded to him by NASA. As the story goes. Yeah. No, it's all there, man. I tell you. And, and back to the same concepts of Heinlein and Clark, kind of 
establishing what we know today as quote unquote science of space. I mean, Kubrick did the same thing because without Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey in the summer of 68, the summer of 69 with the astronauts slowly jumping through them on the moon, it would not have looked proper to people. I don't think right. I think you know, that that movie was the first time and you saw that the same that the astronauts acted the same way in space. They slow moving kind of jumping, you know, no right. different than you see in the Apollo 11 missions. It's very, very similar. So, you know, I think he kind of set the stage for that, much like the science fiction story set the stage for the other science of the satellites, the rockets, et cetera. Right. He's setting the stage with how how, how astronauts move, like their, their ability to move in space. Yeah, no, it's those are very heady, incredible events. I mean, it's just hard to, it's unbelievable to think that they went as far as to fake the moon landing and convince really the world, really create a fake history. Sure. With all those, I mean, all those astronauts and all that stuff. And I think that when, I don't know exactly when Kubrick and Clark fled to their uh, places, like Kubrick left to England and never came back. And then uh, Clark he built a moat. Sri Lanka. Yeah. They just Kubrick, he Kubrick built a moat around his house. That's what he was going <laughs> to Yeah. Was, like he, he was scared of something. <laughs> yeah. Like he was involved. And I mean, if you think, you look at the, what was it, Grissom, that whole, the story, the story behind the story of the Grissom burning is that they did it intentionally. That they, no. yeah, you ever hear that story? No, I haven't. Yeah, so like he was complaining about it, like I'm not going to fake this, and said, okay, well, here's what you get. You're all going to, you know, well, you're all going to get torched, and it's a terrible accident, right? It's certainly That's plausible. It's yeah. certainly plausible because he was deeply ingrained in whatever was going on there. Yeah, and I heard that he was kind of a loudmouth, and he was a stiff neck, and he was stubborn, and maybe he just didn't go with with the program. And these other guys didn't have a choice, you know. Sure. It's like Moonraker. What was it? Not Moonraker. What was it? Capricorn One? You ever see Capricorn? Oh one? yeah, with O.J. Simpson. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of a play on the whole moon landing is fake story, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's how I took it too. I mean, I just yeah. watched it probably four or five years ago for the first time. But yeah, I mean, they just—if you could just replace the word Mars with the word Moon, it would be All the right, same thing. Yes, exactly. And almost like the lead, the kind of lead bad guy, looks like kind of. Uh, like a cutout of a CIA agent of that time. And he's like, we didn't have a choice but to fake it. We were in a in a battle against the, you know, the the communists. And that's the same rationale, supposedly, that why we faked the moon landing before. Really good right. version. Have you ever read McGowan's Wagging the Moon Doggy? I have actually. It's actually yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I discovered that a number of years ago. It was one of the first people to make me really reconsider the subject. Me too. I actually I, that was it was much easier for me to believe 9-11 was fake, then the moon was fake, actually. Yeah, it was really tough for me. I, was, I mean, just up from a personal note, my grandfather was the lead engineer on Hubble. Oh, and uh, my uncle was the head of director, different side of my family, was the was director of security for um, Ames Research Center, NASA. Oh, so, so you have a lot of NASA people in my family. Gotcha. <laughs> but, well, you know, then, yeah, that's interesting, an interesting to come to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, NASA itself is a pretty peculiar administrative body for a lot of reasons. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, if you think about it, it's still, it, it still very much serves and functions as a military organization. I mean, right. it's secretive. It operates in the same fashions that military organization would as far as operations and procedures go. Right. And, and and they started out as part of the Air Force. So That's from what, 1940, was it 47 to 1958, right? Was, was the National Security Act of 1947 created the United right. States Air Force? And then rolled up the space operations into that, which the Air Force still does a good deal of it. They have a whole Space Force command. Um, and in fact, they do all the launches. So a lot of the NASA launches go out of like 
for example, Vandenberg Air Force Base or um, Cocoa Beach there in Florida at the, at the Johnson's or the Kennedy Space Center, which is uh, another Air Force Base, like, skipping my mind at the moment. <laughs> but, um, the uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's still, you know, those, those two organizations are still very much intertwined today. So you really can't have one without the other. Right. So as far <laughs> as it being a civilian organization, I don't know that it ever really has been. And there's records. I mean, there's records on record in the 1960s, right? Mm-hmm. There's a dude. Uh, run, I can't remember his name right now. He's running the Johnson Space Center down there. Uh, was, that, was that the one in Houston? I think. Believe yeah, Houston. And uh, he's wearing his Nazi SS uniform to work every day. Wow, interesting. And it's accepted. You know, like no one's complaining about it, right? Like there's not like a big fuss about it. It seems like historically speaking, looking back on the on the matter, it does seem like seem like everybody was okay with it. Yeah, man, it's incredible stuff. Well, it, it's just, it, I mean, it speaks to where that organization grew from, though, too, because, I mean, it clearly right. grew from its Nazi roots. Well, I've actually had seen the calculations of uh, Warner Von Braun. Like, I've seen these. You got to remember, this is pre-computer. They had to do all of the high-level calculus and algebra by hand. And it's, it's I mean, his calculations are super advanced. The guy was really smart, man. Like, you can just see his book because there's so many little moving pieces on a rocket at that time. You didn't have the computers to figure it out for you. Sure. Yeah. No, so. I mean, mathematics is definitely a language that's being lost in our current society. That's for Yeah. Well, if you have just hit buttons <laughs> and have the computer do it for you. Right. <laughs> I remember they used to make us do everything by hand just for that reason, right? Oh, so absolutely. That that's how I did it still when I was in school. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't all that many years ago they decided to quit teaching cursive to students. I was like, why? How are they going to sign their name? Right. No, it's, it's, we're, these kids are going to be totally different than us, man. Oh, and every time I see something going on in society, I just don't care for. I just arbitrarily say, "Oh, thank a teacher," yeah. you know, because <laughs> that's the way it is anymore. They're not teaching these kids whatever they're doing to them. Well, I mean, there's a lot of indoctrination now, which is a whole other show. But gosh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if is. they're really teaching. I, don't, I really don't know if they're. I teaching. don't think they are. Yeah, I don't. I think that's been it's been lost for years. I don't think I anything I experienced was technically called teaching. Anyway, so what? Any other thoughts about the Sentinel? Anything uh, like I, to add? Anything we missed? I think we just covered the highlights of it. I mean, it is a short story; it's brief, and it was then trans- transpired into a greater story of the 2001: A Space Odyssey. And in in that effort, I just think it's it's interesting to look at the time frame, the, the parties involved, yeah. and, the, and and the general topics that are included. You know, you have the the ancient aliens to the obelisks to the you know to the concepts of what we know now today as space science. Right. It was then as just space science fiction. Are you so when they were working on the movie, the intent when they were working together, Clark and Kubrick was that Kubrick was going to put they were owning it together. Kubrick was going to put out the film and Clark was going to put out the book at the same time. Right. That's how I understood. Yes. But Kubrick pulled a fast one on Clark and would not give him the rights to publish part of his book for another two years so that his film would be predominant and not compete with the book. And Clark was pissed, but he said he forgave Kubrick later. But Kubrick kind of outmaneuvered. I mean, Kubrick, if you look at his negotiating and stuff, he was he was something else. I did quote uh, Stanley Kubrick Producers. I, I interviewed the guy who wrote that book, Fenwick. And just okay. you can just see this, how savvy Kubrick was. A very... He seemed like a brilliant man. Yeah, I mean, brilliant yeah. guy, but very his negotiating st- skills... He was playing to win, and I think sure. he kind of played to win over Clark too. 
It sounds and, like it. I, I knew what, there was a break there. I didn't realize, you know, when the release of those, I didn't realize there was such a beef between the two. Yeah, there was a beef. I mean, it was a beef because Kubrick said, no, I'm not going to let you publish right. this book while my movie comes out. But uh, he would do funny things. He would he he got into the minds of the people he was working around. So when he had a good idea for a movie, he would intentionally have a producer fly over from Hollywood, but he would make them wait at the hotel for two days. So wow. he would get yeah. So he would pull like stunts where he, oh, I'm really busy tomorrow. Sorry, can you? Come oh, that's the next a power day? move right there. And that's a real power move. Day. So the guy yeah. would be all the way over and waiting and waiting and like he, he's so the guy waiting at the hotel in his mind he's like I'm not going to ruin this adventure and I'm nervous and you know I really want to get this deal done and Kubrick would just be sitting around fiddling his thumbs you know because ramping this guy up and so he, he used that as a negotiating tactic. Wow. Yeah, and he said it was from his chess, his early chess skills. You know, he's a chess master that he learned to move these pieces around on a film like a chessboard. I, I can see it because I, I, yeah, I think the guy was brilliant. I mean, you, I'm a big fan of film, and I'm a big fan of writing. Writing a film is what I pay attention to most. Outside of just, you know, some people pay attention to the acting. I care less for the most part. If it's not written well, it's going to be a shitty movie anyhow. Right. So the, um, uh, yeah, so. I, th I mean, I think he hit a home run with that movie too. I mean, 2001: yeah. Space Odyssey was it's still it plays today, still, you know. So well, a lot of movies all, from that era do not. Look at all the look at the look at the relevance of his films. They're still being talked about. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, the, the Vietnam film, Eyes Wide Shut, Lolita, oh, I mean, The Shining um, is one of my favorite Love. movies. Yeah, Shining. All of his movies are really uh, incredible. Uh, no, I, I've ordered, he, he, he started incorporating other ideas, not under, unlike other. You know, film story story producers and film film um, uh, directors, uh, uh, that like The Shining, the hotel is built on a mound. You know, that seems to be the underlying. You know, an no, ancient, it's like an Indian burial. Yeah, right an there. ancient. Well, yeah, it's an ancient an ancient Indian burial mound. Like that's right. the underlying story for um, the poltergeist. For uh, you know, you name the the, right. whole, the movie it? of the Pet era. Cemetery. Pet Cemetery. Yeah, you right. name Stephen the movie King. There. Right, all Stephen King. Says. Stephen King loves it. Steven Spielberg loves yeah. mound stuff. Yep. And then Stanley Kubrick even said, "You know what, guys? I like what you're what you're doing there. I'm going to do that too." So yeah. I, you know, there's just some of those concepts like that. I think that you know, I think that's in the very occult concept. I think not one I fully even understand, and I've studied it for years. And I don't know what their upset these groups' obsessions are with the mounds, but they, they have an obsessions with them. And I do know that much. And uh, and it's it's on above on and above just looking at it, like, oh, that's a cool structure. And but speaking, of, speaking of mathematics, the mathematics are deeply ingrained into all those mounds, especially the larger structures. I mean, there is some unique geometry that, that can't be replicated today. And there is some, uh, I mean, for example, the Serpent Mound in Ohio, it's a calendar for the sky. It will right. tell you the seasons, the change of the weather. I mean, everything, every, anything you need to know from about the sky, that thing will read it. And someone someone knew that, geom that, that advanced geometry and mathematics thousands of years ago, so... Right. Maybe maybe the ancient aliens concept and these mounds concepts with these people they come inside. I don't know. Well, people always say that the past people were not as intelligent, which I don't buy that. They just had, they were working with different, uh, comp, you know, different structures and ideas. But I mean, if you are don't have a TV or anything, you're you're much more attuned to the changing of the seasons than we are right. today, especially yeah, if you're waiting for farming or something like that. Oh, absolutely. There's there's almost no evidence supporting the claim that people of the past were dumb. Right. I mean, even just a couple hundred years ago. I mean, the start of this country alone, the uh, the, the literacy rate was greater than it is today. You're right. I mean, no, it's true. And and then uh, George Washington, for example, 
He had a PhD in mathematics by the age of 16. Didn't know that. Or the equivalent of. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, right, so he used that for all of his cartography or whatever? Absolutely. In traveling and mapping out the United States, the early the early colonies in the Ohio country. And uh, Alexandria, right? So didn't he map out Alexandria? He did. Yeah, I mean, basically anything from Virginia through Ohio. Yeah, he, he was he was mapping that stuff out. And, and he also, for whatever reason, mapped out the mounds. Fascinating. And, uh, I mean... That's. I mean, he spoke eight languages. I think it was with the natives. I mean, he spoke every native language of the um, Iroquois. I'm sorry. Iroquois. Right. So he was the there Algonquin. at the Seven Years' War, right? So he was involved in the backcountry in those wars. All sure. There were some gnarly stories about George Washington. I mean, that's a whole other work, but they kind of paint him as the head of state. But in his frontier years, it was about it was about as lethal as you could imagine. Like he was hanging out with natives, cutting people's heads off. They were the natives were. They used to actually scalp people and then crack their brain open and then put their hands in their brain and lash their brains up. So yeah. George Washington was exposed to all that. That was that's pretty brutal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and he, I mean, he, but his he seemed, and at least as history tells it, he made he made peace with many of those people. Yeah, was that, it Fort, that's Fort, Fort Ticonderoga, right? Yep, that, that yep. was that battle. Yeah. Yep, that's right, right there, the uh, south end of Lake Champlain in New York, yeah. uh, New York State. Yeah, so yeah, all, I mean, the, yeah, all but, those Indian all those tribes were, are gone. Well, I mean, just all those people are far more brilliant than most people are today. You know what I mean? Like, it, there is definitely a dec declining just over a larger you know, amount of time of, of education. But even since the Department of Education was created in this country in, like, 78, maybe, 1978. Have you seen some downhill. of the old tests they gave kids back at the turn of the century? Oh, yeah. The testing, they're incredibly, they're like, called, they would be called college age now. I was going to say, they're, yeah, they'd be master's level yeah. education today. Yeah. It just shows how dumbed down we've become and how lazy and how how really, how well educated in the classics and things in mathematics these people were back in the 19th century. And I, you know, I don't know if there's anything that, that really connects the, the occult uh, groups of, of America or the world to the dumbing down of America or the world for that matter. I'm not sure what the education level of many other countries are. I've, I've not paid any attention, but uh, I mean, you know, it seems to be that the, the longer, the more that these occult groups have taken hold of America, you know, they've, the America has gotten dumber. dumber yeah. it, you know, there's, there's a loss, there's a loss of liberty. There's a loss of independence. There's a loss of, loss of personal liberties, you know? Yep. No, but I they, totally agree. And it kind of goes in line with their 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 concept of operations because their concept of operations is they're going to lie to you about a moon mission, they're going to they're going to put on some quote unquote magic show on a grand stage, right? So I mean, right. deception's written all over that. Right. Deception's the opposite of personal liberties. Agreed. Yeah. Well, the slaves have to serve, right? So you got to keep the serfs yeah. dumb down, free, afraid, and and poison them and do all that fun stuff. And I think that's a good portion of those uh, the two subjects we're we're talking here connect because that's. You know, I think that's one of the goals of of of, of these kind of groups and um, and their productions of uh, for the masses, multi-purpose, I'm sure, but but for the masses, for the profane, the folks that are not, right. you know, inclined to know what these things mean, you know, the, the goal is to, to to entertain these people, and make them as dumb as possible. Right, and you can actually see Clark and Kubrick as one of the early technocrats, I think. Because, oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. They may have invented the you know the field of it because again a lot of this starts with those guys. Right. Without, without the concepts these guys established, we don't have many other things. Right. We, we don't have the technocratic age. We don't have Brzezinski. We don't have a lot of these people. El Jock, El Lul, all these guys. Yeah, I think they very much lay the baseline of it back then. And, right. and 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 again, you have to look at it over a swath of time because you're looking at 
he wrote this story, I, I think initially, you said 1951 was published. 51, yes, correct. I think it's initial, like he initially started writing it, like, like 48, maybe, you know? I think and, you're right. And, and, um, he, and it was, he, he later published it because I, for some reason, this seemed like a, a story he didn't really want to do. Like he didn't want to, he didn't want to expound upon it later when he, and I think in the eighties, they kind of, he added a bunch of other short stories under an umbrella of the Sentinel. And he, he seemed to not want to do that then. He seemed to have be kind of against it across the board, and and uh, you know it, I, it just seems like an odd odd uh, odd opinion for a writer to have his own work. Yeah. Like he's doing it for a purpose, a purpose that he doesn't fully agree with, maybe. Maybe I mean the, I, him and Cooper, maybe the whole you know moon landing they got cajoled into it, bribed or blackmailed or who knows. And, yeah, I mean, and who knows what else uh, other grand schemes or plans that are involved with and that's just a component of that they may not agree with, you know, and they're like, well, I I was doing this portion, but I don't agree with that portion, you know. Right. And, or, yeah. you know, they see what's going on on a grander scale, maybe not agree with the grander scale, because at the end of the day, no different than NASA, the U.S. Air Force, the government at large, or, you know, other organizations such as those, they're compartmentalized. These are cold. Right. These are cold organizations and stuff. They, I'm, they're no different man. from from my from my outside purview of them. But I mean, seemingly that's how they operate in, internally. They're, they're very compartmentalized. Right. I mean, it's it's actually the real story of those years of '69, 2001, a space odyssey, and the moon landing. Are really, something else. Yeah. That's a. It's a fa- The real history is much more interesting than the fake. Oh, I'd history. love to know it. I'd love to know it. I mean, you brought up Dave McGowan, and I mean, he he reinvented the '60s history for me. Like I hadn't known anything of that stuff was going on between the moon landings and the the Laurel Canyon scene that he he wrote about with the the intelligence the cold agent. Same 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 group of people. Same network. Same not exact same group of people, but the same ilk. The same philosophy of people. Right. The same kind of we're going to create a huge myth for the masses. Yeah, deception. Kind of deception is at its root. Like enchant them or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So That's exactly it. And if you look at that whole scene, the whole scene was magical. Right. Like they're all, wrote, yeah. McGowan wrote a whole chapter in his book how all these bands first started out with magical names, whether it's the Grateful Dead, who were the Warlocks, right. or the Mamas and the Papas, who were like, they had some other, it was something something to do with the, um, like the circle or whatever, the, the ma- magical circle or something. Yeah, that was, that was their initial names. And then, you know, these same group of people are, Allegedly, process members as it as it would later, you know, pan out within the LA prosecutor's office when they're looking for people to, to as, as witnesses for the Manson prosecution. Right, either process members or members of the elite or some uh, military intelligence. The yeah, sons and daughters. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. But I mean, again, the process you're talking, you're, you know, it's an offshoot of Scientology and Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard both originate back in the same sci-fi writers club. Back to Mark Parsons and all with Clark. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but he, he interacted with Clark. He interacted with Heinlein. Yeah, absolutely. They're, I mean, they're of the, they're all, they're all at the same time. In fact, Clark, I think, had some. Uh, he even did some work with uh, L. Ron Hubbard's college roommate, Corbiner Smith. I think they wrote a story or two together. Interesting. And Corbiner oh, Smith right. is uh, really that's a pen name, and the dude really wrote the. He's a U.S. Army officer in World War II. He was. He wrote the uh, U.S. Army's handbook on psychological warfare. Right, I think we mentioned that last yeah. interview. Yeah. And you know, and again, so there's that you know you have that connection. There's this underlying connection between all these little groups. You know, you have the psychological warfare, warfare, military intelligence, Scientology, psych- Scientology, being seen as psychological warfare. Yeah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> the moon landing. All he that incorporated stuff. so much psychological warfare in that system. It's it's a, it seems unreasonable looking at it from the outside, knowing what 
kind of where he came from and where he got some of those ideas from. You can see how he applied it. And it's just like, wow, that dude was evil. Yeah, really evil. Yeah. He, he messed up so many people's lives. It's off the charts. Yeah. It, and it still goes on. And they, they wield a powerful hand. They wield a powerful hand that I don't think many people see publicly. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I agree they're, they're, they're a technocrat. Hubbard is really kind of a technocrat, a modern psychological technocrat. That, that's, that's what I was going to say. That's exactly what I was going to say because he, you know, he. What they do now is they're all concentrated on purveying, you know, their ideas through film, you know, and it's not just uh, battle battlefield Earth, right? You know, I don't disagree with all their ideas. You know, some of the some of their their, their greatest ideas ideals of the Scientology group because you know Scientology clock is is correct twice a day, just like any other broken clock, right? And you know they made a film in I think it was 1997. It's almost exclusively a Scientology cast. Uh, enemy of the state, and if you look at and watch that film today, it still it still plays as far as films go, and it, it also um, tells the story of the age we're living in now. And and so, and, and enemy of the state with warning. Will Smith is a Scientology film. Oh, I mean, the cast is almost exclusively Scientology. I didn't know that. Wow, that's. I mean, you can look at it as if Scientology had nothing to do with it. But what's the threshold of Scientologists in the film before you realize you want to say that Scientology probably played some role in that? Right, because Smith is a Scientologist, right? Or wasn't he an offshoot or something? Yeah, at the well, at the time he was operating a a, a charter school. Right. Shortly thereafter, and he got the for an L. Ron Hubbard charter school. You don't you don't right. get that you don't get that license without being a member. I remember that. Yeah. And his wife was on paper on record saying that she's she's I mean, dabbled in Scientology kind of kind of admission. But you know that's kind of at the end of the day a lot of them a lot of them don't talk about it. Right. And and some of them are very public about it. That movie had a secret 9-11 in it, too. Thank you, Really? Yeah, it was uh, oh, Gene Hackman, I think, is his either – where was it? It was either in the license that he had or something. There was a secret 9-11. I have to look that up. Yeah. And it really is there. That's interesting. I'll look back at that, prominent, too. Prominent 9-11, too. It's got a lot. It's got a lot of that underlying stuff, and that's what I'm saying. I've rewatched it just a few, maybe two months ago. And I was like, "Wow, this is really interesting." And again, I, I, you know, I, Jack, for example, I mean, the whole again the, across the board, Gene Hackman, I'm not sure about, but how many movies can you do with Tom Cruise before you're suspected of being a Scientologist? <laughs> and then uh, Will Smith point. and Jason Lee was one of their prominent Scientologists at the time. Yeah, Jason Lee, and then you got Travolta. You got all these characters. Well, a lot of them. Jason Lee plays a small role in Enemy of the State, but it's a it's an integral role. He starts off the whole mystery thriller situation. That's right. Beginning. He was the one who got the film tape, right? So Correct. He secret tape. He's the Scientologist. You're right. Yep. And then uh, Giovanni Ribisi. Right. Uh, Jack Black. He's a Scientologist. Oh yeah. If you listen yeah. to Tenacious D song, he even pays tribute to L. Ron Hubbard in in Scientology and Dynetics. Didn't know that. Wow. I forget the name of the song off the top of my head, but um, I can send it to you afterwards. You can put it in the show notes if you'd like. But yeah, he uh. I mean, I mean, is he a Scientologist? I mean, he's paying tribute to Scientology in a song. So, I mean, it seems, it seems like it's not you a far joke. Yeah, I mean, some of those guys probably aren't that public. You just don't know who's over at the, the celebrity center at every any given time, right? No, and then, and then you get to the film production; they're deeply ingrained in film production. So, I mean, you know, in music of the even the scores of film, there's, I mean, most of the films, the big films, and even major musical hits of recent years of recent right. decades. It, the uh, lead, the singer Beck, that's not his real name. Beck, right? That's right. That's his stage name. But he's the he's a Scientologist. But his father is the producer and scorer of music of, of all sorts of films. Yeah, Beck Campbell, I think, or something like Beck, that. I think you're right, Beck Campbell. It, not much music wise gets made in Hollywood without his father's, you know, involve, involvement. That's crazy. So well, that's I got to head off to I got to head off to another interview. What uh, 
anything you'd like to add before I wrap this up? No, I, I mean, I think I think the biggest thing on the underlying tone I'm I'm starting to see through a lot of these people is the psychological warfare aspects of their stories, you know, because not only are they convincing people of space and the concepts and quote unquote science of space, you know, the you know all well, just the fake concepts and fake science of space, they uh you know they go on to to purvey other psychological warfare tactics within their stories of other deception. You know, and again, not all, and not of all of its deception, because again, enemy of the state, I I tend to agree with most of that message. The government doesn't need to be spying on everybody, and we're entering into a state of where of technology where that's all they're going to do, full speed ahead. It's beyond spying; they're just going to have a full record of your life from birth to death. That's and really what's even more crazy is you'll have your own personal dossier. Yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of if you really watch Enemy of the State, that's kind of what they're warning about. Yeah, yeah, crazy. The coming age of that. Yeah. Well, we're here. I think we're actually there. They probably have all that stuff available. Oh yeah. I mean, nineteen ninety seven, we were kind of on the cusp of it, but yeah, by, right. by the early two thousands, it was it was definitely in, in full 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 speed ahead. That's great. Well, that's a great conversation, man. Again, it's Valibus or JJ, and uh, really appreciate your time. Really fascinating. Oh, William Ramsey, uh, excellent conversation. Enjoyed yeah. it. Let's, let's do it again uh, soon. Yeah, absolutely. Soon. All right. Take care. Yep. Out here. Thanks.